Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's reading comes from 2 Timothy. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, in in 1955, Harvey Bright was working for the New York Times Book Review, and he got to interview a person I care about. Who is it? J.R.R. Tolkien. And uh, Tolkien's a weird dude, an interesting dude, and Harvey Bright of the New York Times Book Review asked him, Dr. T, what makes you tick? What makes you tick? To which Tolkien replied, I do not tick. I am not a machine. If I did tick, I should have no views on it, and you had better ask the winder. So for the month of January, what I've been trying to do, what I hope to do, is to articulate what makes the church tick. And along the way, like Tolkien, to subvert and to reframe the question altogether. The church doesn't tick because the church is not a machine, but if she did, what is it that makes her energized? And what is it then who winded her? She was made to tick by someone. If you want to know what the church is all about in the world, the purpose of the church, the goals, the values, the ideals of the church, what you ought to do is ask the one who started it. Rich Mullins wrote a song on the Apostles' Creed, and he says something that also has bearing on the church. He said, I did not make it. No, it is making me. As I shared last week, I think that in our language, we reflect a lot of confusion these days about what the church actually is. Pay attention to our language. Like, hey, how was church today? Well, what is the church in the church in that sentence? It's a worship service. Or you're like, oh no, I left my scarf at the church. What is the church? The church is a building. Or I saw the billboard that said, for America to be strong, the church has to be strong. What is church in that sentence? The church is a prop for a nation state. This reflects this kind of confusion that we have. Some people say, I experience church in nature. What do they mean? I have these feelings of transcendence. Or if you go to a concert and it was, you know, this euphoric moment, and you're like, man, we had church tonight. Church reflects those, those strong feelings that are just like electric. But none of these things adequately capture what the church is when we open the New Testament. When we read the New Testament, it gives us these, these pictures, these metaphors to help us understand what the church is. The church is described as the body of Christ. The church is described as the bride of Christ. It's described as the flock of Christ. It's presented in terms that are cosmic. Like if you read Ephesians, the church lets lets God's manifold wisdom be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. 
And yet the church is also very local. There's the church in Antioch. There's the church that meets in Phoebe's house. So we said last week, the church is not just a euphoric moment at a concert or, or transcendental feelings in nature. The church is not a building. The church is not a worship service. The church is not a prop for a nation state. Instead, the church is the collective group of people that are attached to Jesus. The group of people who are going where he goes and doing what he does, worshiping him, learning to be like him in the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. We become part of the church by repentance and faith and baptism. We become part of his body. We become betrothed to him as the bride. We're made a sheep of his flock. And we express this kind of cosmic level belonging locally through affiliation with particular bodies of believers. But the church is bigger than just the people in this room, for example. The church extends beyond the national borders of our country. The church extends beyond even the limitations of time, but we're bound with all in heaven and on earth throughout time who've bowed the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We're all those people throughout time attached to Jesus. This is the church. Last week we were answering the question, what is the church? Today we're going to be talking about this, this question that may feel very antiquated, very uninteresting to some of you. It's the question is, what is church membership? So in our teaching text today from 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to a young pastor, and he gives them some great language and some pictures to understand both what the church is and, and, and images to help populate our imagination for what church membership looks like. So let's look at uh, 2 Timothy 2.1. Paul writes, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Speaking to a young pastor who is tasked with, with maintaining the fidelity of the church to Jesus, Paul says, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to others who are going to be able to teach. What Paul is doing here is he's establishing the normative practices for what the church teaches and preaches. He does this in kind of a twofold way. First, it models for us that we are to preach and teach to the best of our ability with humility what we understand was passed on from the very beginning. What should be the substance of our preaching and teaching in our churches? The stuff that was passed on from the very beginning. I really like this as like our model. Paul echoes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning of verse 3. He says, what I received, I passed on to you. And this is what good preaching and teaching does. Not just what an individual pastor received, but what the church has received from Jesus Christ. From the teaching and the ministry, the mission of the apostles. What we receive, we pass along. By God's grace, the idea is like a, like a continuity, a vision of a faithful message carried on in the game of telephone. What I received, Paul says, I passed on to you as of first importance. And then he cites what's effectively a little creed, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the Twelve. 
After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. He says, what I received, I passed on to you. This is a rubric, uh, like a, a, a scorecard that we could apply to preachers and teachers today. Is their teaching and preaching in continuity with that of the apostles? Or come at it this way. If you, like, take your favorite, you know, podcasting preacher that you listen to, or even me, take their words and put them in Peter's mouth, does it sound weird? Or take that, that sermon, that promise, if you sow your seed, you're going to get an escalate, and put it in Paul's mouth and think, does this sound spot on? If it sounds weird, or if it feels like this feels like it's in conflict with the rest of what we're reading in the Scriptures, you should be on your guard. Is our teaching in continuity with that of Jesus and the apostles? This is what we're to preach and teach, that which was handed on to us from the beginning. The second thing that we're given, that's kind of modeled for us in Paul, is we're to be on guard against teachers who contradict ancient or communal wisdom. So know what Paul says. He says, the things you've heard from me that I said in the presence of many witnesses pass on to others. Meaning the wisdom, the insight that was collectively shared by the community of the apostles that was widely established, that's the stuff that you're to listen to. If the teaching you're hearing is diverging from that, you should be on your guard. Now you may find people in Christian history and you may find Christian, like supposedly Christian teachers, preachers out today who say stuff that is different than the ancient communal wisdom of the church. You're going to find those extant voices. They, they, they uh, deviate from, there's that, this Latin phrase, quad ubique, quad semper, quad omnibus, that which was believed everywhere at all times by all people like the Catholic and the universal sense of Christian doctrine. You'll find people who deviate from that. But if their teaching is, in fact, in conflict with the communal wisdom passed on from the beginning, we should be on the defensive against that. That's what Paul said to the church in Galatia. He said, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Here's the stuff that Jesus passed on to us, Paul's saying, to the apostles. He says, if even I deviate from this, let me be under God's curse. I heard Bishop Todd, we're, we're part of the Anglican Church of North America, if you don't know that. We're learning, it's kind of like, I shared with someone recently, that was kind of like an arranged marriage three years ago, four years ago now. We didn't really know each other, and we had to get to know each other and learn to love each other. And I'm learning to get in love with this group of people. One of the things that's neat in this body of believers is that we have a bishop who kind of oversees this grouping of churches. And I heard Bishop Todd, his name is Todd Hunter, speaking at a service for the consecration of a new bishop, an assisting bishop. And he asked the question, what is the work of a bishop or an overseer in the church? And I loved what he said. He said, their work is continuity. Continuity with what? With the apostles' teaching and practice. I loved that. Continuity with the teaching and the practice, the mission of the apostles. 
In a similar way in this passage, Paul demonstrates to us that the life of the church consists of learning what was passed on to us from the beginning, being in continuity with that, and then putting it into practice by the power of the Spirit as a community. And this is what we, we collectively need to have our radar up to be paying attention to. Are we in continuity with that which was passed on from the beginning in our doctrine and in our practice? And then Paul goes on to give some examples of, of what this looks like uh, to, to, to like help the average person get a picture of it. Uh, this is uh, from, uh, verse 3. He says, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. This is the first of the images that he gives us, a soldier. He says, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather he tries to please his commanding officer. That's image number one. Image number two, he says, similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. Then he gives a third image. He says, the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. And he pauses and says, reflect on what I'm saying and the Lord will give you insight to all of this. So what does it look like to be a person in the company of the church who's putting this into practice? Well, it looks a little bit like a soldier. And it looks a little bit like an elite athlete who's training to win. And it looks a little bit like a farmer. In each of the examples, there are conventions and there are rules and there, that, that kind of guide and govern participation in each of those vocations. And so take, take being a soldier. Those of you who've served in the military or maybe you've been uh, fire or police where there's a clear chain of command. You certainly can ignore instructions from your commanding officer. And those of you who've, you know, <clears throat> been an elite athlete, you can just pick out and eat what you want whenever you want and not train and still compete. You can do that. And if you've ever, you know, had a garden or worked as a farmer, you certainly can plant at harvest time and then try to harvest at the time when everyone else is planting. But in each of those cases, you are working against reality. You're working against the conventions, the norms, the guidelines that, generally speaking, lead a person in each of those fields towards success. You're working against reality and your own interest. And Paul says, just as logic and common sense would commend in, in, being, in being in the military, and being an athlete, and being a farmer, just as common sense would commend following the norms and the conventions of each of those vocations, so Paul says, we are to follow the norms and the guidelines handed on to us as disciples. We're to teach and to practice what is aligned with the teaching and the practice of the disciples, of the apostles, from the very beginning. Now, I know it's a cold morning, but if you're understanding what I'm saying generally, give me a, give me a head nod. Okay. So uh, there's a book that has really encouraged and challenged me in recent years. It's on a topic that is not super flashy, but to me is really, really important. I think it could be helpful to some of you as well. Uh, the topic is institutions. Institutions. The, the book is called A Time to Build by Yuval Levin. It's, it comes, it's inspired by that passage in Ecclesiastes where you know, there's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to tear down, and a time to build. This is the, the big idea of the text. It's on this theme of institutions. And institutions immediately inserts this stuffiness into the room in as much as it overlaps with church world. 
Some of you, like, have a natural anti-institutional mentality and perspective. Like, I get it. I totally do. But roll with me as I define what institutions mean here. Levin, in, in an interview, defines institutions as clumps of people organized around a particular end and organized around an ideal and a way of achieving that important goal. And so your basketball team, you could call an institution in this sense. It's a clump of people organized around a particular end. What's the end? We want to win. How are we going to do it? What's the idea? Well, we have to do it in accordance with the rules if we're going to win. And you may have some unique cultural values to that team. But at the most basic sense, this is an institution, a group of people trying to get something done together according to some kind of ideal or ethic. And so when you think about it like this, Marriage is an institution. If you were to go back, those of you who are married, if you could go back to your your marriage ceremony, you made certain vows and certain conditions in which you would fulfill those vows. Uh, To you, I promise to be faithful. You know, in, in times of economic greatness and in times of scarcity, there were terms, there was a goal for your marriage. Parenting, similarly, is an institution of its own. It'd be an interesting conversation to consider what is the goal of parenting. Public education is an institution, healthcare or the hospital is an institution, the church in this sense is an institution, the military is an institution. Here's the thing that I want you to, to like stick with, roll with me on this, is that we're in a moment of deep anti-institutionalism. And why is it? Because we've seen so many people who are in institutions fail spectacularly. And this is the insight from Levin in his book. We tend to trust institutions when we believe that the people in those institutions are being formed according to its ideals and its mission. We tend to trust an institution if we believe that it's forming the people who are within it according to that institution's ideals and mission. So, if you're a person in the room who you feel yourself naturally inclined to trust the church or even to trust pastors. I'm going to guess that in your past, you've had decent churches, and you've been under decent pastors because we tend to trust institutions when we believe they're producing trustworthy people. Or if you're a person who in your lifetime, you've married a narcissist or an abusive person, you may feel yourself naturally inclined to mistrust an entire gender or to mistrust the institution of marriage on its own. We tend to trust institutions that are forming people to be trustworthy. If you've had great doctors and great medical care, uh, if you trust them, like it's probably because you've had great people in the past. We trust institutions when we believe that the people in them are being formed according to its ideals and mission. And the converse is also true that we don't trust institutions when we don't believe they're being formed according to their ideals and values. Uh, People in Congress right now, Uh, let's take a quick poll. Do you trust members of Congress? No, I'm not going to ask you. (laughs) I already have data on the question. There's no one in Congress right now who has greater than a 50% approval rating. No one in Congress right now. It's because collectively, it seems to be the case that at least half of us do not believe that they're acting according to the ideals and the missions of the institution. We stop trusting That tells us that each of us as individuals in our engagement with an institution have an effect on the trustworthiness of that institution. 
How we engage with institutions has a major effect on its trustworthiness to others. So whether it's marriage or parenting or pastoring or public health, being a nurse, being a teacher, being a business owner, knowing that our engagement with that institution will affect the trustworthiness of that institution in the minds of others, there's a really important question that we can and should ask if we want to embrace the gift that institutions give us. And the gift that institutions can give us is the opportunity to be formed. There's the formational nature of those institutions. And here's the question that those of us who are in them should ask. Given my role as husband, as father, as pastor, as business leader, as accountant, as public servant, given my role, how should I act? And this, this really calls a person towards some higher level thinking and toward maturity. It means embracing the formational nature of that institution. It also means, it also assumes that you're participating in a just institution because there are institutions that don't have worthy or just ends. But assuming that it is, given my role, how should I act? It requires us to ask the question, one, what is this institution trying to achieve and in what way are they trying to achieve it? How are those who are participants in this institution expected to conduct themselves? What is acceptable? What is not acceptable? And restoring trust in those institutions means doing not what do I most want to do in this moment, but what does my role ask me to do? Now, not only in, in the church world, but in many of our public institutions, we are in a moment right now, a crisis of trust. What happens is when people fail to meet expectations enough times, whether it's pastors or politicians, when, when people fail to meet expectations enough, enough times and mistrust reaches certain thresholds, there's a natural instinct in people to say, what must we do to fix this? We need to tear the whole thing down. And without making any comments on, on, on like the, the validity of these movements, you can see mistrust at work against institutions in recent history in our country. Whether it's defund the police, or whether it's January 6th, or whether it's, without villainizing it even a little bit, the deconstruction movement within the church. They're literally saying this was not built in a good way and it needs to be taken apart. This is what happens when mistrust reaches certain thresholds is that people naturally have a tendency to say, we should just tear the whole thing down and start from scratch. But I believe that this is a wrong instinct. That I believe that what we need is not to burn it all down, but for the people inside of those institutions to be formed instead or formed anew by the mission and the values of that institution and in so doing to rebuild along the way. And I know what I want, and I bet you want the same thing, that we want our church, thinking of it as an institution, we want our church in our own small way to help re-inject trust into the faith conversations people are having in our city. And how will we do this? It is not by tearing the whole thing to the ground. Instead, it's by embracing the formational nature of the institution of the church. And again, I use institution in the best sense of that. It's a group of people trying to get something done according to a certain ideal or ethic. 
embracing the formational nature of the institution, and aligning with the teaching and the practice that were given to us from the very beginning. I've been struck um, in study in the last handful of years. Some of you have taken a course that I teach from time to time called Catechesis Gospel, and I've been really struck um, by the formational nature of the early church, especially in the first 300 years. And for much, much of the first 300 years of the church, it was really, really difficult to become part of the church. In parts of that history, you couldn't just show up to a worship service to kind of like get a sense of whether you liked this body of believers. That the worship gathering was only for those who had been baptized. That if you wanted to become part of the church, you had to go through this process of, of training in Christ-likeness. It's called catechesis. And in catechesis, you'd be trained on the practicalities of Christ-like living, namely things like the Sermon on the Mount. And so you deal with your loyalties, you deal with your anger, you deal with your lust, you deal with how you think about your enemies. And preceding baptism, you have these kind of rigorous conversations about how we're meant to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's an assumption that our teaching and our practice actually matter. In the second century, a church leader named Justin Martyr, uh, writing about this transformation that was happening within the church, said, those who are found not living as Jesus taught should know they're not really Christians, even if his teachings are on their lips. He said that not those who merely profess, but also those who do the works will be saved. He also said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says about, talks about the change that happened among believers. Those who once rejoiced in fornication now delight in continence or restraint alone. Those who made use of magic arts have dedicated themselves to the good and unbegotten God. We who once took pleasure in means of increasing our wealth and property now bring what we have into a common fund and share with everyone in need. We who hated and killed one another and would not associate with men of different tribes now live together and pray for our enemies so that they may share with us the good hope of Christ. And the historian Alan Kreider, commenting on Justin's writing here, said, when people see Christians behaving like this, they're intrigued. This is what I'm saying in the nature of institutions. When we behave according to the ideals and the mission of the institution, people are attracted to it, and this is precisely how the church grew in the first 300 centuries, despite a significant difficulty of becoming a baptized member of the church, despite significant cultural disincentives. One person said every candidate for baptism was regarded a candidate for death, and yet the church grew. In the absence of mastermind strategies, the church grew. Why? because the church was compelling. The church lived according to the fair teachings of Christ, the Sermon on the Mount kind of stuff. It said when people lived like this, outsiders were intrigued. They wonder at the God whom the Christians say motivates their behavior. And when the Christians live with integrity and visibility, quote, by our patience and meekness, Christians draw all men from shame and evil desires. Now, this is intense. You know, I've, I've perhaps cited to you before the, the conversation about vocation in some parts of the early church where it's like, all right, you want to become a Christian? Great. Step one, let's talk about your job. Is it problematic for being a Christian? If so, you're going to have to quit. That's step one. It's intense. 
I'm not suggesting that we're, we're, in, we're in different times. It's a different context. This does sound like quite a lot, but it also reminds me of a burger joint that I saw in a little town in Texas, somewhere between Dallas and Houston. And there's this, you know, like hole-in-the-wall kind of burger joint directly next door to a McDonald's. And facing the McDonald's on this wall, there was spray-painted, you can find a cheaper burger, but then you have to eat it. Our attractional, low-challenge, low-commitment, consumeristic models of church engagement are rendering poor results. And we are eating this sad, ecclesiastical hamburger. (laughs) Peter Drucker said, Our system is perfectly designed to get the results we are currently getting. Are you satisfied? Are we satisfied? Should we be satisfied with the results we're currently getting out of American Christianity? It's precisely in this spirit of kind of like calling us to strength, calling us to maturity, that we're, we're talking about church membership. It's in the spirit of the, the, the best nature of institutions that we're talking about church membership. And I want to suggest to you a threefold purpose for church membership. One, church membership means formal identification with the body of Christ expressed locally. Formal identification with the body of Christ expressed locally. How are you a part of the cosmic body of Christ? Well, it's going to be expressed through a particular body of believers, the local church. This grants us a a sense of belonging to Christ's body. We have a part to play. I heard someone say that one great thing about the local church is the local church enables people to be a big fish in a small pond. So like, take, take someone who's a faithful volunteer in, in kids' ministry in our church. Their volunteerism is not making it to the Tulsa world. It's not making it to USA Today. But that person really matters in our community. And the, the kids who look up to that person, like th- that person really matters. They're able to be a big fish in a small pond. We're able to have a part to play. You know, you, you'll, you'll always appreciate there's that person that always serves you communion and you never had another conversation with them, but you received the good news of the gospel through them every week. They were a big fish in our small pond. The church enables us to have a part to play. The church enables us to have a sense of belonging. I'm part of something bigger than me. It is not just Jesus and me, it's Jesus and we. It's bigger than us. That's part of membership. It's formal identification. I'm a part of this group of people for all her warts. The second component of membership here, its purpose is it's, it represents a formal commitment to being shaped by the ideals of the body of Christ. And this reflects the formative nature of the, the, the church as an institution, is it invites us to, be, to live according to the fair commands of Christ, to be shaped by the gospels we talk about in our mission statement. And then the third component of this is of membership is membership is about working to help realize the purposes of God in the world, the purposes of the body of Christ in the world. These three things come together for me in a lovely way in what we're doing this afternoon. This afternoon, the people who like collectively call themselves Cornerstone, who've heard the teaching about Jesus that we must have regard for the poor, the foreigner, the outsider, are working together to extend mercy and an act of justice in the name of Jesus by opening up a warming shelter. It is messy. It is a little bit expensive. 
Every now and then we think about security, and so we have officers here, but it's the right thing for us to do. And people who have long written off the church see something like this and they intrinsically know, even if I don't like the church, that's still a right and a good thing. It earns credibility for us. We're not doing it for that purpose. We're doing it because it's right. But the world sees it as intrinsically good. And this is where our belonging and our formation and our sense of mission come together. Church membership is a formal way of subscribing and submitting oneself to the ideals and the mission of Christ's church. And by becoming a member of a local church, even if it's not this one, considering all the institutions of which we're a part, we should ask the formational question, given my role as a part of this church, how should I act? Now, as like a as a person formally entrusted with some measure of leadership within the institution of the local church, um, there's, there's like some clarity for me about what I'm responsible to do. Um, I went back to my ordination vows. If you go, if you want to Google Book of Common Prayer 2019, ordination of a priest, you can find these words. But in the ordination of every pastor, every priest in our, our um, province, in the Anglican Church of North America, you're going to hear these words spoken to, a, to a, an aspiring priest. Say, remember how great is this treasure committed to your charge. They are the sheep of Christ from whom, for whom he shed his blood. The, the church and the congregation whom you will serve is his bride, his body. And if the church or any of her members is hurt or hindered by your negligence... You must know both the gravity of your fault and the grievous judgment that will result if every pastor took this seriously. Therefore, consider the purpose of your ministry to the children of God. Work diligently with your whole heart to bring those in your care into the unity of the faith and the knowledge of God, into maturity in Christ, that there may be among you neither error in religion nor immorality in life. Finally, equip and lead your congregation to proclaim tirelessly the gospel of Jesus Christ. In seeing that the demands of this holy office are so great, lay aside all worldly distractions and take care to direct all that you do to this purpose. Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scriptures that you may show yourself both dutiful and thankful to the Lord. And frame your conduct and that of your household and those committed to your care according to the doctrine and the discipline of Christ. What is the standard? That which was passed on from the beginning. Know, however, that you cannot accomplish this of yourself, for the will and the ability needed are given by God alone. Therefore, pray earnestly for His Holy Spirit to enlighten your mind and strengthen your resolve. If every pastor took these words seriously, asking the question, given my role, what should I do? How much harm would so many of us have been spared? How many dollars dedicated to counseling, processing church hurt would go, could be spent elsewhere? 
I've been learning about the nature of institutions and paying attention to what do the institutions of which I'm a part demand of me, marriage, parenting, pastoring. And so I've been thinking through a new lens about the staff handbook that we have or our bylaws or the bylaws of our diocese, Churches for the Sake of Others, or the Anglican Church of North America. And I've just been doing, you know, the super fun work of reading about like bylaws and institutional polity and stuff like that. One of the things that surprised me in reading the, the canons, the church law of the Anglican Church of North America, is that it ascribes specific duties and responsibilities to the lay people of the church. I want to read this to you. It spells out the duty of the laity. Speaking, thinking about you, it says the people of God are the chief agents of the mission of the church to extend the kingdom of God by so presenting Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit that people everywhere will come to put their trust in God through Him, know Him as Savior, serve Him as Lord, and the fellowship of the church. It is not merely paid professionals who are given this responsibility. It's the responsibility of the church, of the, the, the church together, the people of God. He goes on to say, the effective ministry of the church is the responsibility of the laity no less than it is the responsibility of bishops and other clergy. So when people are like bad-mouthing the church out there, there's certainly criticism that ought to be levied against people like me who wear microphones on their faces. But who is the church? It's the collective people attached to Jesus. We all have a responsibility to play in maximizing the trustworthiness of the church by attending to our own conduct. It's incumbent for every lay member of the church to become an effective minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, one who is spiritually qualified, gifted, called, and mature in the faith. And then it goes on to, like, bullet point the responsibilities of the laity. It says, with the help of God's grace, it shall be the duty of every church member, member, given my role, what is required of me, how should I act, to worship God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit every Lord's Day, Sundays, in a church unless reasonably prevented. Second, to engage regularly in the reading and the study of Holy Scripture and the doctrine of the church. Three, one of your responsibilities is to pray regularly for your needs and for those of others, for the church and its mission, and for the concerns of the world. What is your responsibility is to pray for the world. Fourth, to observe their baptismal vows, to lead an upright and sober life, and not give scandal to the church. I've already said if every pastor took this seriously, how different would the world be? If every Christian took this seriously, how different would the reputation of Jesus and his church be in the world? Fifth, it says to present their children and those they've led to the Lord for baptism and confirmation. Sixth, to give regular financial support to the church with the biblical tithe as the standard. Seventh, to practice forgiveness daily according to our Lord's teaching. What is our institutional responsibility? To forgive other people like Jesus has forgiven us. Eight, to receive worthily the sacrament of Holy Communion as often as reasonable. Nine, to observe the feasts and the fasts of the church like Epiphany, Lent, etc. Ten, to affirm and to follow the biblical standards of sexual morality and ethics. 
11, to continue their instruction in the faith so as to remain an effective minister for the Lord Jesus Christ. It sounds like those of you who have to do CE, it sounds a little bit like this. Continuing education. We need to stay sharp so we can represent Jesus to the world. 12, to serve their neighbor, sacrificially demonstrating the love of Christ to the poor, the sick, and those in need. And finally, 13, to devote themselves to the ministry of Christ, the proclamation of the gospel among those who do not know him, utilizing the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives them for the effective extension of Christ's kingdom. Now, I can't help but notice that none of you are writing that down. (laughs) What's the deal? Um, I don't list these things to be a burden to any of us. But I do list them to demonstrate that we have an awesome opportunity by virtue of participation in the institution of Christ's church to move toward growth and toward maturity together. And this is precisely what I sense the Spirit doing in this next step of maturity for us as a church, to move toward growth, to move toward strength, to move together toward Christ-likeness. And if we're to re-inject trust into the institution of the church in our own small way, we must be formed together according to its ideals. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, commenting on the Sermon on the Mount, said, the Sermon on the Mount will crush the individual, but it will give life to a community. And I find this helpful, and and, and, in thinking about this whole conversation, I find that helpful because I know myself well enough to know, and maybe you know yourself like this too, that on my own, I struggle to choose the good. I know that on my own, it's difficult for me to choose that which is best for me without the encouragement and the companionship of others. I know myself well enough to know that I need a rule, I need a guide, I need a community if I'm to be truly committed to growth. And Jesus knew that this is true of all of us, and so he gave us the church. Therefore, I want to say to you that membership is not for those who are mature, but it's for those who want to be. The membership, participation in a local body of believers is not for those who are well, but for those who increasingly desire to be. It's not for those who are presently fully formed, but for those with the humility to admit that they're not there yet and will not be apart from a community committed to its ideals and calling one another to strength. May God so work in our community that he would give us the grace and the discipline and the presence of mind and the courage and the social riskiness to choose the good together to not merely walk alongside each other as like an army of individuals, but to be a cohort of people building our life around the person of Jesus Christ, striving in increasing measure to be a community that is shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. And to the degree that we do it in our own hit or miss, limping toward the finish line kind of ways, may God restore the trustworthiness of the church of Jesus Christ. May you work in our city that it may be in our church and it may be in our city, in our state, in our country, in our world as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Jesus, I I echo again the words of the song that I thought of last week, thinking about the church. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. 
Lord, I repent for the ways in which we have McDonaldized the church. We've, we've uh, been satisfied for a cheap piece of meat. We've prized speed and efficiency over depth of discipleship. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would stir your church to action and maturity. That to the degree to which we're standing in your way, you'd say to us what you said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but rather the things of man. Pray, Lord Jesus, for this church called Cornerstone. I pray that you'd purge us, Lord Jesus, of, of rival affections, of worldliness. I pray that you'd tend to our wounds that cause us to be slow to trust. I pray that you'd tend to our intellects where we have reasonable questions, things that we're trying to understand about how you're working in the world. And I pray, Lord Jesus, as you heal, as you clarify, as you tend, I pray that you would give us the courage to respond in obedience to what you're doing in the world. Lord Jesus, we need your help to do this. We know how spectacularly we will fail left to our own devices. So I pray that you pour out your spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. I pray that you'll make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ that we may be for the world, the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Lord Jesus, we welcome you to come and do the things that we cannot do. As we come to the table with thanksgiving and faith, I pray that you will restore us, equip us, renew us uh, for the sake of others. So I pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.